0: We're recording. Apologies for the delivery scooter men revving outside my window. (laughs) This is Beyond the Pass. Conversations with people from all walks of hospitality life. Centering mental health, Beyond the Pass is a conversation about life, hospitality and what makes us get out of bed each day.
1: Welcome back to Beyond the Past. Today we're here with Sal from The Food Witch who is going to talk to us a little bit about intuitive cooking and their journey through food and what they're building with their company and we're really excited to have them here.
0: Thank you very much. Um, hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Sal. Uh, I uh, call myself The Food Witch and I guess the most succinct way that I describe what I do is uh, an intuitive chef and for me um, my job having left uh, having burnt out in the city and left a, a career in finances about um, finding sort of meaning and purpose and, and fulfilment from what is inevitably going to be a very long and hard career no matter what I choose to do um, and so kind of trying to find a way to um, put something that I am proud of and that I think is good out into the world, something that is tangible and something that brings me joy which is pretty much everything to do with food and cooking.
1: I don't want to make this about finance, but I'm really curious about a moment that you might have had when you were still in that industry, where you were like, "Absolutely, fuck this! I gotta, it's got to be something else." So, if
0: I'm honest, I think I felt that way from the beginning. Um, you know, without sort of playing too much into stereotypes, although you know they exist for a reason. I come from a family, you know, where. Um, I'm first generation born here. My family's from East Africa, moved to the Britain in the 70s. And, you know, I've got two parents that are doctors, aunt that's a doctor, dentist, lawyers, immunologists, every professional kind of standing you can imagine. And so wanting a career in food was just, it just wasn't really on the cards for me for a really long time. And So I went down a track that didn't feel right, but that I knew would bring me job security and money and all of that stuff and my intention always was I'll just do it for a few years figure out what I want to do and move into like a great high-flying job um, in industry and as somebody who studied economic history at university and has always quashed my anti-capitalist sentiments up until recently there came a point it wasn't like fuck it, I can't, I need to go work in food. I already knew that. It was actually like, fuck it, I cannot be this, I cannot do this much capitalism anymore in my life. It felt so empty and so um, pointless and useless and like all I was doing was helping rich people get richer, pushing around numbers on a spreadsheet that meant nothing and, and frankly working in a way and in an environment that was really unhealthy, like hours, travel, misogyny, all of that stuff. And um, there came a point where I was like, right, you know, I work in this company. I've been here for four years. I've earned the right to take a bit of time off and to do some things, you know, to further my interest outside of being a consultant. And um, unfortunately, it was at the time of the financial crisis. They'd made a huge number of people redundant, become really busy. And they were like, no, sorry, you can't take a sabbatical. So I handed in my notice because I just couldn't couldn't do it anymore. And my plan was, let's just I wanted to go to Leith School of Food and Wine and study and, and figure out, you know, what my passion was and where I wanted to go. And my intention was maybe to go back to finance. But, you know, within a month of of being in, in Leith and working in food and studying, I was just like, there's no way I can go back to that. Um, and that was nearly ten years ago now that I went to lease, and and since then, like I've done so many different jobs and and had businesses and all sorts of things, um, have kind of brought me to where I am now. And actually, it's it's funny because I think everyone kind of gets to that point in their mid mid to late thirties where they're like, finally, I kind of know who I am. I know what I finally kind of vaguely know what I want to do, and so now I'm finally starting to feel like what I'm doing is kind of hitting those buttons of of balance, of joy, of fulfillment. Um, And, you know, I actually feel like I'm doing something positive and tangible, which I didn't realize was so important to me.
1: I think it's interesting that you came from a work environment that was so void of ethics and to then now create something that is so driven by ethics. And as if you're like whatever you may have contributed to negatively as somebody working in that system, you're now like repair, 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 and to like counterbalance sort of that energy. And I think that's fascinating. I'm wondering if there is if you can name like a particular principle or a particular ethic that you always sort of go back to when you feel like perhaps you're losing the way or you're like, oh, wait, what are we doing here? what's the purpose of this? What am I trying to, is there something that you constantly return to that gives you that sense of groundedness in your work now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and this was the thing that it it was a really long journey for me to get to. I think I kind of, I, I don't like to use this language, but owning my gift, I guess, in, in a way, like knowing that I have something that's worth sharing and that I have something that is unique to me in the way that I offer it and deliver it. Um, I kind of feel like that there's a there's a reason why I've come to the point that I am now doing what I'm doing, and a lot of that is I kind of have a mission i guess, and that mission is to kind of break down those boundaries and those um those fears that people have around food and cooking and the elitism around food and cooking and and i often I often don't see it as ethical, maybe a little bit more kind of moral i guess if there is a distinction but for me, like I don't I don't see myself as some sort of evangelical ethical warrior because what I'm trying to do is is not be extreme because I think there's so much extremity in politics, in opinion. It's almost like the driving force is to be different and controversial. And for me, food is it, at its basis is is not about that. Yes, sure, we want to be competitive or blah, blah, blah. But actually that's all capitalism. Like food is about joy, it's about connection, it's about nature, it's about connecting to your environment to the world around you and in the UK in the food world it's so easy to lose sight of that it's so easy to be you know how do you be the most ethical the most sustainable the most instagrammable etc and actually the principles behind that might be valid but you're doing it for a different reason and you know I, I don't look for fame or glory or you know accolades what I look for is making like uh, an impact on one person's life for me that is so much more important than somebody celebrating me on tv um and so I can always come back to that as like you know I know that I've helped people I know that there are people whose lives are better whose relationship with food is better whose fears around food and cooking uh, have been allayed by my work and you know for me even one person to do to make that change with one person is super fulfilling and i never had a, even a taste of that in what i did before so yeah it is difficult you know as a freelancer as a private chef as somebody working in hospitality you're constantly bombarded with stress and reasons to doubt yourself and um and knowing that i i have my lane i have my niche and i'm good at it and trying not to kind of compare myself to others and sort of think, you know, I get asked all the time why I don't go on MasterChef. It's like I have absolutely no interest in going on MasterChef to professionals. Like, I don't want to be in a room competing with seven white, cisgendered men to create restaurant-style food, which, you know, for all the work that they do to make it more accessible and more approachable, at the end of the day, the industry is, is the way that it is, Um and so, for me, kind of carving out my own my own lane, I think, is the way that I I stay grounded and and stay within myself, and knowing that I have something that I ha- I can offer, and it's it's good enough. Like what I do is good enough; it doesn't need to be more than it is.
1: I think that's such a that idea that it doesn't need to be more than it is. That what I'm doing, that's good. I think that where we fall into the thing you mentioned earlier where it's like well we want everything to be the most the most the most the most and you lose sight or it's so easy to lose sight of like your true principles around why you got into cooking or why you wanted to open a restaurant or whatever in the first place and you're right to point out that like particularly in the food scene here i know restaurants where everything you know they do everything is sustainable everything's like compostable you're like eating with something made of some kind of biodegradable wood but they treat their staff like shit or vice versa absolutely. places that treat their staff like shit but the suppliers they're using are like absolutely decimating with pollution like poor community like there's there's no ethical consumption under capitalism like you're not absolutely. going to be able to do this perfectly but if the core of what you're doing is like causes little harm as possible, or heal as much as possible, or, I don't know, just don't be an asshole as much as possible. Like, those are actually really, really good places to start. And I'm really interested, I think that there is more space for people that are approaching it that way now but definitely in the 10 years you've been doing this that would have changed so much and i'm wondering when you were at leaf did you have a sense that it was going to be possible to be in the food world and be in hospitality and be a chef in the ways that you wanted were there role models or instances where you were like oh there there is space for me in this despite how at the time particularly white bro-y, had all of the isms it was
0: so I think yes and no. The reason I chose to go to Leeds, um, you know, I think the two highest regarded private cookery schools in London are going to be Cordon Bleu and Leeds. And Cordon Bleu is very focused on teaching you the classical French techniques and giving you a really great classical training. But I didn't get the impression that the wider world of food. And that um, career options were as much um, of a focus there, whereas at least they did all of the classical training, and then you had, you know, structured access to different, you know, food styling, food writing, um, restaurants, production kitchens. You know, you you were forced to do work experience. Forced is the wrong word. You were asked to do work experience. And so even even in that year, I I'd, I'd done work experience in a restaurant, in a bakery, um, at BBC Good Food. And so you you did see there was more than just the restaurant, and I think because we I was in a school, you know, I had people from the age of eighteen to sixty, um, all genders, all persuasions, all um, all backgrounds you could imagine. Um, not everybody wanted to go into restaurants. You know, a fifty five year old woman who's who's wanting to career change doesn't want to go work eighteen hour services in a basement. And so having those different avenues kind of exposed to you was was really really good but again you know just like with we were speaking about before with the kind of master chef competitive be better be the most similarly when I was at least we live in a world where capitalism money those are the things that matter so everything is kind of focused on getting into those high flying good prospect careers you know go to a really good Michelin restaurant and you'll be sous chef in a few years and and all of that stuff. And even when it came to sort of private catering and stuff, I kind of think they glossed over the reality. Like they kind of made freelancing sound like it was a really good idea. Um, you know, <laughs> having a catering company, great idea. You know, if you don't want to work structured shifts in a restaurant, if you've got Ooh. other things going on in your life, start a catering company. Um, and You know, I don't blame them because they're there to encourage us to do the things that make us passionate Mm -hmm. and find the niche that that is good. But I think, you know, they they want to also build you up. And some of the realities, I think, were less clear. But I also, again, as a person who has been brought up in capitalism, as a person who is brought up to be very high achieving, very dedicated, you know, be the best even though I was at least I was leaving a high-flying career I still was like I have to be at the top of the class I have to do the best all of this kind of stuff and so it you're in that mindset of like what is the right thing to do as a chef what is the right path to go on what is the right experience to get and so you know now 10 years later I think what was I doing my first job Not quite. My second, my first job was catering at the Olympics, where I fed Boris Johnson, Um, not something I care to remember, funnily. Um, And then my second job was working in a restaurant, and I hated it. Like, it just wasn't for me. Um, The environment, the hours, the structure... And a lot of it was because I came to it at the age of 26, having worked for four years in an environment where I had no control over my schedule. My hours were ridiculous. I literally had no life outside of work. And, you know, you were in a high pressure, high stress, often aggressive, I guess, or tense environment. You know, people didn't mince their words. I got shouted at in offices all the time. And then coming into a restaurant where I like, you know, I'd left a job where I was managing a team. And then you're like, well, now I'm getting treated like a child. And, you know, I feel like 10 years ago, a really good example of this, a chef called Tom, whose surname I won't mention, but very quickly, I think we know, (laughs) know. his restaurant took me in for a trial. I did a 14 hour shift. I was shouted at like I've never been shouted at before because I didn't know what I was doing I was given no instruction and then at the end of the shift I'd worked so hard I peeled like hundreds of potatoes I'd confit like 6,000 quail legs and at the end of the shift the sous chef comes in and is like sorry there isn't a job but thanks for your hard work and like this kind of this tendency of people to do trial shifts I I did eight trial shifts for restaurants only two of them had jobs that they were offering otherwise they just wanted the free labor right and having that experience at the age of 25 having been working in a corporate environment where despite all the misogyny and all of that stuff there's a level of respect and a level of meritocracy and a level of like if I've done my work I'm not going to be in the office Mm -hmm. If I don't have to be in the office, I'm not going to be. And nobody minded. It was a a really good corporate environment as they go. But then I came into this restaurant. I'm like, like, what is going on? Like, this is unacceptable. Not only is the pay atrocious, but then I have to do like two weeks of free labor in order to get a job. And then only to be treated like shit on a shift. And like, You know, I was on the pastry section, so I would be in at 8 o'clock, I'd leave at 2am, four back-to-back doubles. The baptism of fire in that restaurant was for the first three weeks you worked, you didn't get a day off. That's how you had... If you wanted to have a job in that kitchen, that's how they rotated you on. And I was just sitting there thinking, like, this is... A, this is not why I left a job I hated. B, I love food, and I hate food when I work here. And C, like, how how is this a way... For me, like, food is joy, connection, beauty, all of that stuff. And, like, there are people crying and sweating into plates of food that they're charging 30 quid for. This is not right. This is not right. I saw people picking stuff off the floor because they didn't want to get told off. You know, things like that where you're put in a situation where you can't do good because you're constrained by stress and pressure and capitalism. Um, I found working in a restaurant really demoralising And I didn't do it for very long. And then, you know, again, what should I do? What's the right thing to do as a chef who doesn't want to be in a restaurant? So the next thing was, let me start a bakery. So I started a bakery. I had run a bakery for, you know, five, six years. We had, you know, lots of market stores. It was doing all right. But again, this was just doing capitalism. This was like, how do I have a business out of food? How do I have a product Get sales, grow, buy a house. And again, losing sight of what it was that, why I left the job that I did and why I wanted to work in food. So, you know, it took me a couple, you know, after that, we're talking maybe 2017, 18 at this point, quite a lot of soul searching, quite a lot of kind of work on myself and self development. And, you know, there was a lot of, I had a lot of personal stuff going on at the time. So, it all kind of culminated in like it felt like everything fell apart in life in work and i was like you know what's going on i left this is meant to be like my joy my career that i'm going to do forever and because it wasn't you know it was it was quite hard to deal with so it was very much a case of like right let's get rid of all of that let's start again what are the things that make me happy take a bit of time off work started doing you know yoga and meditation and that kind of stuff and you yeah, know, eventually I just realised that there isn't one single thing that I want to do in order to fulfil my mission in life, which is to bring people food-related joy. Because I see that as being teaching, I see that as cooking for people, I see that as writing, I see that as, as conversations like this. You know, there are lots of lots of different ways I can do it. And also, I can't cook constantly I can't every day cook for 20 people like I I just don't want to it's too exhausting I'm getting too old there are other things I want to do I enjoy teaching I enjoy creating content I enjoy going on podcasts and tv and doing interviews I enjoy cooking for people but I don't enjoy just doing one of those things um and so I was like well, why do I have to like the people you know my my girlfriend's. Um, stepdad he he, he he there's always the men that do those grilling conversations of like so what how's the business what are you doing How, what's the thing that you're focusing on that's going to be your like big break and you know I have this conversation with my family all the time and it's really interesting because I'm I have to like fight against the urge to to comply and be like yes yes I'm I'm focusing very hard on growth and capitalism and all of this stuff and actually the answer is like that's not how I want to live my life. I want to earn money. I want to have a nice house and, you know, have disposable income. But I also want to feel really good about what I do. I want to enjoy what I do. And I don't want to get bored. And I want to work in a way that allows me to have a life, to spend time outside, to go places, to spend time with my friends and my family. And the variety is what enables me to do that right so now i've kind of gotten to this place where six months of the year i'm doing private chefing three months of the year i'm teaching november and december i'm making thousands of mince pies and my year is kind of you know it's quite different um i don't get bored and i know that when i'm not cooking for people i'm i'm sharing something with people in another way and yeah sure like i'm not going to be a multimillionaire with a product on every supermarket shelf up and down the land but is that really going to make me happy I don't think so like I'd be happier knowing that I've taught 50 people how to make delicious food at home and that's my life's work done that I think it would be a great achievement and so I think it's just reframing things about not you know capitalism is all about money it's all about growth it's all about competition and if you remove those things and say yes of course I want them not at the expense of fulfilment, of feeling good about what I do, of feeling morally and ethically like I can defend why I do what I do from that standpoint and for me those things are just more important now and I'm okay with that. I think it, you know, those couple of years of making that switch was, it was just about being okay with not wanting to be the capitalist empire builder and just wanting to have a life and do good in the world and to reframe that as being actually more important than making money.
1: I think that's so, so hard to unlearn. And there's something so fascinating about, I, I mean, there is just a gendered element to this where if a white guy who went to Harvard was like, I do all these different things and it's about connection, everyone would be like, wow, he's an entrepreneur. Wow, he's Mark Zuckerberg. Wow, like there wouldn't be the same, like there wouldn't be doubt. They wouldn't be like, oh, you're pissing it away. Like, there just wouldn't be doubt. So there's something very interesting about the confidence and sense of rootedness you must, you have to feel in order to not defend yourself against having to navigate that critique, but just letting it roll off your back.
0: I I mean, I, I say I talk a very good game in this podcast, you know, I have, I, I will need half an hour of therapy after a family event where I've had to answer those questions because, you know, you do have to do the work. But I guess it's having the tools. That's a really important step. I might not have completed the journey yet, but I have the tools to know what matters to me and what doesn't. I know where I'm going, more or less, and the things that I want to achieve. And I'm okay that they're different from what other people want, but I'm not always okay with that.
1: I also don't think that they are. Like, they're not different than what other people want. Well, they're not. They're not. It's just they're
0: different from what capitalism says you should want.
1: I mean, I'm in a moment right now where I'm so angry about capitalism, but it's something that we talk about all the time, where I want to work as little as possible, and that doesn't mean I want to work... I don't want to work hard, or I don't want to...
0: You don't need to justify it. I agree with you.
1: (laughs) I want to work as little as possible, and when I am working... I want to feel connected. I want to feel excited. I want to feel like I'm arriving as myself and like living in some kind of principles that I uphold. Like those are all the things I want. So how can I do that in a way that gives me enough money to live? And especially Absolutely. in London, like that's, it's a difficult, it's a very, it's a bizarre conundrum and it's very, very hard to be able to do that and then still have the life you want. But the older I get, the more pressure there is to compromise and the less willing I am to do it. And the more that we elevate people and places that are coming at any business, this one happens to be food, with an anti-capitalist angle and intention, I think the better off we'll be and the more that we can understand how those things might function for ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, similarly, but different, like I grew up in a Jewish family, there's a lot, without a lot of money. So expectations around professionalism and mobility are huge. And there isn't a very similar, um, I'm sure I get all the same questions as you when I'm, and I also require as much therapy after dinner. Um, But there is like, it's very, very hard to look people that have struggled economically because of all kinds of things out of their control, race, class, religion, whatever. It's hard to look them in the eyes and say, Hey, that thing you broke your back for that thing that you made all those sacrifices for. I'm putting that away. I don't care about that. Absolutely.
0: As millennials, as the children of boomers, that's our, that's our kind of cross to bear and our battle to fight because it's exactly that. I can't tell you how many conversations I have with my mom about saving for retirement and having a pension and getting property investment and this. And I'm like, the world is not the same. Like, we need to stop making those comparisons because what you're doing is you're holding us back by making us think that that's what we need to do. I am never going to retire. I'm going to work and then I'm going to drop dead, realistically. And I would rather do that because I look at all of the boomers that I know that have retired, particularly the men, the moment they stop work and they're sitting at home, everything starts to decline. Why? Because they spent 50 years working, not cultivating interest, not cultivating connections, not cultivating a life that will sustain them outside of work. They have nothing to do. I One of my relatives retired. He went back to work. He's like 80, he went back to work like three years later because he just couldn't deal with it anymore. My mum's retired, but she looks after my nephew full time. I don't know what she'd do otherwise. I swear she'd be working. And so it's interesting because I have this conversation. I'm like, I'm more than happy. Like This is why I don't want to be a management consultant anymore. Because what I would do is I would do a job I hated for 30 years. I'd have a pile of money. Then I'd be too old and sick and miserable to enjoy it. What I'd rather do is just have a little bit of some of those things and not, have 20 years of being old and miserable and sitting on a pile of money and just have that life now I don't want to wait till I'm old to live who knows like chances are lifestyle I've lived probably not gonna be like 90 years old doing you know star jumps and you know also
1: like have you been around 90 year olds no thank you exactly exactly and this is the thing
0: you know, my grandma, bless her, she's nearly 90. And she's as independent as anything. And if I'm like that, when I'm old, then great. But I think, you know, realistically, I want to be able to make that decision of like, when I'm not able to have a life anymore, why do I then need to sit around and atrophy and wait to die? Like, that's just not how I want to live. And so it's very interesting, because like you say, our parents think we're shitting all over their legacy by not doing the same things that they did but they don't understand that it's not possible like it's not possible to buy a house and pay off your mortgage at the age of 50 when the house is 150 times your income it's just the the economics of everything have changed so much
1: it's a losing game it's a losing game like why play literally why play but this is something that comes up in my relationship me and my girlfriend have this um I would say uh it's not even a disagreement, it's like a difference of ideology around this. And I think that I would rather rent an apartment for the rest of my life. If it's like a safe, comfortable place, I got a little balcony, there's space to cook, I can like put my books somewhere. I would rather rent for the rest of my life and deal with that threat of instability than buy some shit house in zone six, where I don't want to live, where none of my friends are, where I can't walk to the theater, where I can't like do the things that fulfill me and eat the things I want and go to the markets I want, blah, blah, blah. I would rather rent forever than own something and be part of like homeownership and be able to talk to straight couples I know about mortgages and shit. I would rather rent for the rest of my life than participate in that culture. Like it's not worth the payoff. Mm -hmm. And so what? So I can say so I have like some acquired capital that I can't even access and maybe use when I'm 75 to pay a nurse to wipe my ass. Like that's not living like it isn't. And when you look at I'm really going to get tangenty, but like when you look at really innovative urban designers, when you look at people that study people and space, cities, developments of towns and communities, all of them will say the same thing. We need connection We need a diversity of interaction and we need the ability to live in our environments so we need to be able to like walk around we need to be able to shop locally we need to be able to like eat the foods the people around us produce and depending where you live if you're in the country or if you're in the middle of london those things are going to look different but if you can kind of check all those boxes there will be a quality of life and there's true community in that that you don't get if you. Like subject yourself to anything else. And I think growing up in a suburban city in North America like scars you and teaches you that really intensely. It's interesting that you say that because I
0: it it really distills for me why I've come at ended up moving out of London and living in the country or suburbs for I would say exactly the same reasons. And this is why it's so important to remove these value judgments from what choices we make about whether we rent or buy and etc and also to remove the the lack of transparency around what the reality is so you know it might be a difficult subject to talk about but i think it's really important that we're honest about how you get to where you are because people Mm -hmm. don't realize you know you've got all these people saying just stop, stop buying coffee and you can buy a house like that is not true our generation there isn't a single person who can buy a house on an average income. Let's just be realistic about that. And I was living in London, and I couldn't afford the house that I was living in anymore. And it was a question now of, what do I do? Do I try and stay in London? For a number of reasons, the things that you were talking about, yes, I was connected in some ways, but I didn't have the human connection. I didn't have the natural connection that I was looking for. You know, I wasn't I lived there for 10 years, didn't have relationships with my neighbours. After the pandemic, my two dogs, we'd all just had enough of living in a flat, Mm -hmm. in an environment that we couldn't go very far and couldn't access green space. And, you know, again, after 20, 25 years of quashing the things that I find meaningful in life, turns out I just really like being around nature. I really like being in big, open, green spaces And that's not necessarily compatible with urban living. Or if it is, it's a very expensive version of urban living. So, you know, I have ended up living where I'm living now out of choice, not because this is where I wanted to live, but because I wanted to live in a different environment. And I couldn't afford to live in London and have that environment. But because I'm, I'm super lucky, I have a house that is cheaper for me to afford than living in London now, because I have family that were able to help me with the deposit for a mortgage and that kind of stuff, right? And there was no way I would, I'd be living in a tiny one bedroom flat somewhere in zone six, in order to support the other things that I want to do in life and not spend all that money on rent. And so I've ended up kind of, you know, it felt a little bit accidental that I've ended up living here. But actually, you know, it's so much greener, it's so much open, my neighbours are incredible like I have friends in my neighbours after six months that I didn't have after ten years of living in London and it's affordable to me and so that combination of things actually frees up so like living in London when money is tight is so stressful because you walk out your door and you want to do something, it's expensive so you need to make sure you can afford to live there and you know we're just kind of changing the way that we live we can still get to london if we want to you know luckily i've got a car but actually like what what's meaningful in life changes as you grow older what's accessible to you changes as you grow older and it's exactly like you say it's not about i have to live in a city or i have to live in a suburb and i have a dogmatic view of where i should be but it's more like how can i get the best connection the best community the best version of what matters to me Within my means, within this country, and um, and you know for that reason I'm not in London anymore. If I could afford to live in London, maybe, maybe I would. Maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. I love how quiet it is here
1: now. But that um, also too, like what you've done is listen to what your actual needs were, and you've made a decision based on your needs. It wasn't exactly. You weren't box checking, and I think that that's. It sounds like you've been doing that with career you've done that with where you live, where there's this sense of I've done the box checking and that actually didn't serve me. And in some senses, staying in London in a cramped apartment with two dogs when what you really wanted to do was like move to the suburbs and have nature and like make chat with the dads in your neighborhood. Like that is when you start listening to like what your needs actually were, you found yourself in a position that is clearly serving you. And like that's the trick, you know.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, you know, I guess at this time particularly, I find it a difficult thing to talk about, not because I I don't think it's fair or, you know, I'm comfortable to be honest about how I've got to where I've got because I'm proud of my family and I'm proud of, you know, how hard we've all worked and all of that stuff. But the reality is, like, I have gotten all of this stuff from an, a place of immense, immense privilege and opportunity you know, having the option, you know, I, I I say I was ready to, you know, I had, I lived in West London, I had a nice flat, had a garden, a little garden, you know, life wasn't bad. But it's also that kind of letting yourself think, well, yes, I'm really lucky. And I have all of this privilege and opportunity. But does that mean I need to, to live in a way that makes me miserable, because I'm so lucky. And it's, you know, With all of the stuff that's happened with, you know, um, BLM and the kind of real conversation that's been having about race and colonialisation and all of these things now, misogyny and gender, um, you know, I think it's okay to confront all of that stuff and say... um, you know, I'm a product of colonialism, my success, my education, all of that stuff is a product of colonialism, my family's success, same thing. But again, that doesn't mean that I'm now going to uphold colonialism just because I'm a six All the opportunities I've got, I've gotten because of capitalism doesn't mean that I then need to doggedly uphold capitalism and conform to it. And I think that's where that generational divide comes, is at the end of the day, we can't. Our generation and generations below, there is no future in capitalism. We know that. And there's that massive disconnect where capitalism served everyone else before us so, so well. Same with colonialization, Same with all of these things that are creating, you know, massive gulfs and rifts and blowing apart now. It's because they've stopped making people better you making the people that are in power better or making the people, you know, the majority better off. And um I find it quite interesting that I'm as part of this journey as well, it's it's wrestling with all of that stuff and not feeling embarrassed about it, but also being honest about it. And you know, whether it comes to how we live where we live and how we afford our houses or why we've had the educational opportunities that we've had. Um, I think all of that stuff is so tied up in that history and those generational differences. And I think unless we are willing to have those conversations, nothing's going to change. Like nothing can change until people before us understand the struggles that we're going through. You know, if they can still vote for our politicians. They should understand the reality of buying a house when you're 30 now. They should understand the reality of bringing up children in a city that's expensive and all of that kind of stuff because you know like my my sister and her husband really good jobs work really hard all of that stuff and it's not like people who are successful aren't struggling you know capitalism is ruining stuff for everyone now and it for me the difference is the people that are still like well it did it served me well so I'm going to keep supporting it. So the people are like, yes, it served lots of people well. So much bad stuff has has made people richer, but that doesn't mean that it's good forever. Um, and I think that that's true in you know in the way that I've gone about my life in the last few years as well. It's it's trying to unpick all of that stuff. And you know, like you said a couple of times, it's it's that kind of balance between what I feel morally good about and ethically good about, what I feel you know, fulfilled by, but also the reality of having to pay bills and cost of living crisis and all of that. But, um, you know, I I sit here in in my house in Sorry, like on a what Wednesday afternoon, having a conversation with you and, um, you know, for all of the things that we might complain about, capitalism, this that and the other, like, you know, I, I'm always reminding myself of A, life's not that bad and how lucky I am. But also, I feel like for so many people, that's the reason to be apathetic, right? Or you're so lucky, everything's so wonderful for you, keep your nose out of stuff. Um, and I think where where I have an opinion and I have a right and I have a, a platform, then I think it's important to, to have those conversations and not kind of shy away from talking about the stuff that that is difficult, Um and, you know, owning up to, to how it's gotten to where you are, I think, as well, because, you know, all of that stuff is just so intertwined and it's never, capitalism's never going to go away unless we have these conversations, right?
1: As like you've sort of carried this journey and over the past couple of years, have those things become more and more present to you? Have you noticed a change in your food and the way that you're cooking and what you want to cook and what you want to use? Has there been a shift
0: Yes, actually, there has. Um, I think I, there's definitely, I mean, over the last few years, there's definitely been a shift to trying to be more seasonal, more local. Um, But at the same time, I actually, there's been a kind of a, a different track, which is, you know, for a number of years, particularly having left Leeds and working in London as a brown person in a white male dominated industry you feel like like you you want to conform. You feel like you want to be as white and European as, and Michelin as all the other chefs. So I definitely didn't... What's the word? I, I definitely minimised my otherness for fear of being othered, right? You know, if you're in a kitchen and you're the brown, shaved-headed, lesbian, only female within 400 miles of the restaurant... Um, you feel like you stick out, right? And every environment that I've worked in, from corporate to hospitality, I've always felt like I stick out. And whether it's a cultural thing or a, you know a trajectory thing from my background, I have in me the principle of not standing out, of conforming, of being part of the mainstream, of integrating and all of that stuff. So I went down the road of restaurants, I went down the road of it was all kind of trying to be Londonish. You know, in the 10 years ago of London where it was still okay to call stuff fusion and there wasn't a particularly defined national variety of cuisines in the kind of commercial food scene, it was all like um, it was okay to call something a Thai green curry, whatever you'd put in it, and nobody. Would even think about it and I found when I started making stuff that you know I don't I've grown up in a family my family's East African from by way of Gujarat I've got a half Italian half Iranian uncle white people have married into our family you know there's all sorts of cultures and foods and stuff going on and so for me like I mean you know, like a cardamom custard in a brioche doesn't seem like it's that far away. It's not that exotic, but f- apparently for like middle class white people in West London, that's like blows your mind in
1: 2013.
0: <laughs> and so I, I, you know, on reflection, I'm glad that I did what I did because it's made me the chef that I am now. But, that, you know, I feel a bit icky looking back at how I didn't, I didn't promote the fact that I'm... I'm from a background that's half Gujarati, half Tanzanian and that I'm the first generation born here and that we have all of these different food cultures in our family and that food culture is at the heart of our family. I think that for me, that's the big difference and why what I do now is so important. Like I grew up with a food culture so intrinsic and ingrained that I didn't even have to think about the fact that I had our entire social and family life is centered around food. And so coming out into a world where, in the UK, where, you know, in a very general and perhaps overly general term, you know, food culture is is really lacking. Like, British food culture... So I've done research into this as well, is, you know, up until the Romans and all of the, like, empire building, this is why we were a colonial country. There was nothing here. There are no... So the native vegetables I could find were asparagus and a parsnip that was inedible, but became edible (laughs) after the years of... So this is like thousands of years ago. What were British people eating? They were eating like bark and inedible parsnip. (laughs) Whereas all over the rest of the world, there's all sorts of food culture going on.
1: No wonder they drank.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And and that's the thing is there's so much grain growing. You can have like 600 different kinds of whiskey while they're making the same in olive oil in Greece and Italy. Mm. But there aren't 600 different vegetables that you can do that with here and so for me like that kind of that food culture that I grew up in I didn't realize how important it was and how much it's given me and how much of what I do now and the joy that I have in food has come from that but also how it can the lack of it means a lack of connection to something that for me is so important like being connected to food being connected to You know, asparagus season at the moment, it's my favourite example of of this. I do not eat asparagus any other time of the year. You show me Guatemalan asparagus, I will literally vomit in disgust. Like, I cannot, no way. Come April, I eat asparagus every, every single day. If I don't have asparagus in the fridge, I start to panic because I'm like, I need to eat as much of it as possible. Mm. And then that's it for the whole rest of the year. Mm. But I look forward to this month of the year, for the asparagus, then in a couple of weeks' time, strawberries are going to start to come out. Then you've got, like, broad beans and peas, and your whole year then becomes punctuated by food and ingredients and produce. And for me, that just seemed like, of course, what else What else is there in life that matters? Like, literally all I care about is food. Like, that's the thing I put into my body to sustain me, to make me emotionally, mentally, and physically well. That is there anything more important than like exercise food and social connection no what capitalism no
1: no it can get in the bin but there's something so interesting about this idea that food is the most important thing in your life and what you think about and what goes into your body as people that were socialized females in I mean we're about the same age and a byproduct of a 90s adolescence and food being something that you're consumed by that you think about issues with disordered eating diet culture i mean every time you meet i meet people that are our age and they're like yeah and then i was really struggling with disordered eating and i'm like yeah you were born in like 1988 or 1991 it's like that that was it that was the name of the game like that obsessiveness that the culture insisted upon in terms of moralizing food, good food, bad food, like promoting anorexia with like the really low genes and shit. Like, and now I'm seeing them around and I'm like, why am I so triggered by the way teens are dressing? And I'm like, oh, right. Cause it reminds me of when we all had anorexia. So it like that idea of food being the first thing we think about and the thing that sort of like controls and consumes, the idea that like there is like the other side of that coin or the alternative, like, I don't know if it's possible to fully replace the ways that we think about food. I think that that's quite, I think it's the same if you grow up with food scarcity, um, if you grew up, like, if, you're, if you inherit from your family experience or experience yourself of famine or starvation, like, that shit's really traumatizing and food does take up so much space because we need it to live and we spend all day interacting with it. And the fact that there's this alternative path to walk with it, where it's about excitement, it's about joy, it's about shit being tasty the fact that that is an alternative that exists, and I'm like, oh, you can think about food all the time, but it's, like, fun and thrilling and joyful, and you can bring people together with it, and it actually, like, makes you feel good. The fact that that is even an option is so, it's almost moving to me, and I think one of the reasons why food and restaurants was always so exciting to me is because it takes something that can be so damaging. And create something completely holistic and completely beautiful and like you're right there is nothing more important than food and that's why we have to be so careful about how we think about consumption preparation the way we talk about it the way we feed people because you're right it occupies so much space in our lives and so let's do it with intention and with um a moral supposition to cause no harm
0: absolutely and i think you know even just from the the premise of initially and this is this is often how i kind of Try and frame it to people who, I'm so glad you mentioned diet culture and disordered eating because that's part of why I've ended up with this mission. It's like I suddenly realized, and again, it's it's so easy to minimize stuff, but actually what you've just said, I, you know, I grew up, I was born in 1985, I grew up, even now, you know, the comments about weight, comments about eating, comments about carbs, diet culture, and I grew up with that. But I also grew up with such a strong connection to food, such a strong culture around food, that it inoculated me, right? That was my that was my shield against diet culture. It's like, I love food so much. It brings me so much joy. It makes me feel so good that I cannot give in to that notion that it's morally bad to eat something that t- mm. it tastes so good. <laughs> there is no moral badness in something that brings joy even if that joy is purely emotional right I can eat I can get physical health from food and emotional well-being from food and they can be different foods and that's amazing and what I realized is that that's that's why I'm here right that's my thing that's the thing that I have that I can show people that that other path and that other way and not you know again I haven't I haven't created like a framework and a structure and a school about it. It's like, that's just, that's just me. That's just like literally every moment of my life was like, what am I eating? What am I cooking? What ingredients? What do I need to buy? You know, what do I find? And and for me, the opposite of that, I can't, it's so hard for me to get my head round. I suddenly, you know, what I realise is that, that, you know, with the right sensitivity and the right conversations, I have something to to offer people and it might not change their lives completely, but showing that alternative, I think is, is really, really important. And there's so much more of that going on now that hopefully it will change the way that, that people see about food and, you know, Gen Z are much less diet culture driven than, than our generation.
1: There is so much space to be talking about food and I hate the word alternative, but in different ways, and have a di- diversity of voices bringing food to us in different ways that's accessible to people no matter how they were socialized around it and so like an 18 year old can be like i'm actually just really into like my compost toilet and like seasonal gardening and i'm going to look at them and this is my own bias and i'm going to be like ugh to be young And then I meet someone who's in their 30s and they're as tired as me and they're like, hey, here's a different way to have a relationship to food. Here's a different way to cook. Here's a different way to think about consumption. And I have a lot more time for it because it feels more or that's actually so, now that I'm thinking that, I'm like, that's really fucked up. What's my problem with the young? But it's like, there is something about allowing people from different ages or different demographics to have that conversation in a different way. Like, you don't have a viral TikTok, I don't think. I don't know because I'm not on TikTok, but like, you're going to access a totally different demographic of people with intuitive cooking that somebody who's like some young kid on TikTok who's doing something amazing and like thinking about food in a similar way, they're going to take care of another group of people. And it's when we have the diversity of influence that there is real systemic change, I think.
0: I think that's really true. And I think because there is, you know, it's the systems now that are the problem. Like people, yes, there are good people and bad people. But, you know, the the difference in access, for example, right? You know, let's not pretend there's more than enough money and more than enough food and more than enough ships and planes and trains and stuff to feed and clothe and house everybody on the planet. But it's the systems that stop it from being the case. And, you know, I when I've done podcasts before I wrote a very short book in the first lockdown about having a better relationship with food and you've got to be you've got to be realistic like I'm not gonna there's a a group of people for what I'm saying is most relevant because I'm speaking from an experience and a background that perhaps isn't as all-encompassing and maybe shouldn't be as all-encompassing because like you say different people are spoken to on different levels and it's, it's the fact that it's okay that there are lots of different people reaching lots of different people in lots of different ways in order to make the overall way in which our society and our systems function better. Um, but there is also, it is difficult because particularly when you talk about food and you talk about access and you talk about opportunity, like I'm always hyper aware of the fact that those things are systemically so different for so many people and so I can talk about having a connection to food and eating seasonally and all of that stuff but the reality is that that's speaking to middle-class people in developed countries and you know more me banging on about having an intuitive relationship with food when you've got a dollar a day to live on is you know it sounds a bit stupid, and never and and even mind
1: a dollar day, like food poverty in this country. Like
0: exactly people down so,
1: the from you, know, it's.
0: But then I also think, and why I still do what I do and say what I say is, at, at the core, I believe that the systems and capitalism are broken and bad, and are creating a lot of this, dis- this difference and poverty and disparity in our society. And I also think. That the gaslighting that our politicians level on us about how it's all personal responsibility and if I donate to a food bank and I, you know, do this and I do that, somehow the world is going to change when the, the impetus doesn't exist among the people with all the power and all the money to change it at the drop of a hat. And so I think it's really important that we acknowledge the fact that I'm working on a problem that isn't everybody's problem. I'm offering solutions to something that won't necessarily matter to everybody but that doesn't mean that I don't believe in systemic change. And also, I'm not responsible for systemic change. The people that are responsible for systemic change are the people that are telling us it's our fault. And so I think there's a really important thing. is like, yes, do what you do, carve out your own niche, do good in the world. But don't pretend that the systems that you're working within can stay. Like, I'd be more than happy to restart my career in food with, in a wholly different system if capitalism went away tomorrow. I'm cool with that. But, you know, I, I and for that reason, I don't kind of work in that traditional capitalist model. But, you know, it's something that, you know, as a middle class, upper middle class person who's had all this opportunity and works in this particular niche of food, like I think it's very important to acknowledge the fact that there are... There are much worse problems that I can't solve, but that I need to be evangelical about.
1: I think remembering and holding the fact that there can be both, both things are going on at one time. Yes, exactly, exactly. You can be specific and you can solve the problem that you're solving and be addressing the community of people that you're addressing. That doesn't mean that you need to be quiet about everything else. It doesn't mean that you can't take up space yelling about it. And it doesn't mean that you can't find ways to, like work those things together and I think it's when you touched on this before but I think it's so true that when people feel like they don't have a right to be angry because they've been successful or even worse when they feel like the specificity of what they're doing wasn't born out of something structural so even your family's relationship to food and like I think this is so common with so many immigrant families and you certainly get it in my family's culture where the reason why food was so important it was because it was the only thing that we had it's the only thing we brought with us. There's nowhere to go back to. There's no, like, there's no pieces of furniture. There's no jewelry that can be handed down. Food is the thing that we have left. Yes, the food culture that you inherited from your family is so privileged and such an amazing thing to grow up with and protected you from a lot and gave you this passion and this way to access people and change people's lives. Privilege, yes. But born from something systemically pretty fucked up, right? So it's like, all of that stuff is speaking to each other all the time. And I think it's when we try to draw these really thick lines between experiences that we end up uh, sort of being paralyzed by inaction or it atrophies us and our ability to connect, I think, through food, with people, whatever.
0: Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that, one of the things that over the last couple of years that I've, I'm working around and trying to figure out and you know it's very timely that it's happened is you know I spoke before about how kind of minimising my cultural difference in what I was doing particularly when I ran the bakery and you know everything would be described and caged in European terms and and in that way and over the last couple of years like I've realised that so much of what I find so you know when I talk about intuitive cooking I guess the one the the way that's easiest to describe is like the way my grandma cooks my grandma who's just like she uses the same cup to measure all the ingredients she's like as long as (laughs) it's half a cup and one cup and a third of a cup and it's all in this cup everything's fine and you know she'll give you a recipe verbally and then you'll watch her make it and there's like seven things that she does and you know she's like oh Wait, that doesn't look right. I need to do this, and you're like, "Hang on, I need to understand. What? How can I write this down?" And and that's that moment where like the recipe is the capitalist, Western, cisgendered male way of putting it in a book to sell stuff, and it's not how we cook. It's not how we relate to food. You know, when I ha- when I get a recipe from my grandma, it's a story about the first time she ate it and when her mum used to cook it and the smell that it used to make in Africa and the different ingredients she has to use now and the strange machine that she uses that she didn't have 50 years ago and all of this stuff. And it's, it's a story and it's not a recipe and the quantities are irrelevant, right? And you don't even know the quantities and you just have to kind of guess and you make it three times and eventually you're happy with it and it never tastes like hers and we all like just love that's how we cook and we all make you know the same curry in my family and it will always taste a little bit different from the same recipe from the same person um and it's that kind of you know non-capitalist way of cooking the way that isn't everything must be you know measured and defined and timed and manicured and technical and you know, the reality of it, which is they came from East Africa, moved to London. You can't get... In the 1972, you couldn't get all the ingredients you were using in Zanzibar to make stuff so they make these substitutes. and now the food that my grandma makes is not the food that she used to cook in Zanzibar it's not the food she used to eat in Zanzibar because for 50 years she's been working she makes new curry recipes like once every every so often she would be like oh, I've made this new curry and you're, like, you're 90 where are you getting this from but because it's so intuitive and she's like oh there was this new vegetable that your mum bought from Marks and Spencer so I was like I'm going to make a curry out of it and this is you know 50 years away from learning to cook in Zanzibar, yet our food culture is developing at each stage because of those, you know, moving countries, access to ingredients. And, you know, this conversation about then authenticity and and food culture in that sense and the cuisine that I cook from, you know, I've suddenly recently decided, you know, screw all of that. Like, I need to present as a European chef. I need to present as a trendy London chef. I need to present this way. I need to present very traditional, authentic dishes. You know, that's not the food culture that I'm from, and that's not who I am. I'm not trained in Indian Gujarati cooking. The food that we cook as a family, there is no there is no school, right? It's mm. Gujarati, East African. It's a specific community of specific... It's called Koja cooking. It's my community of Ismailis in East Africa cooking... Gujarati food with East African ingredients without writing anything down with an unwritten language, right? The the conversations that happen at the table and the recipes that we cook, there is no record of any of it in a book, in a Bible, in a textbook, even the language. And so then what is authentic? The kuku paka that comes from East Africa is not the same as the kuku paka that my grandma makes, but that's the kuku paka I've grown up eating for 30 years. So to me, that's kuku Parker, and when I make it's a chicken and coconut curry sorry and when I make that which I don't often but when we have it that's what we're aiming for when we taste mm-hmm. and when I travel mm-hmm. to Africa and I have kuku parka, I recognize it tastes delicious but it's not the same what's authentic mm-hmm. about one and the other and how do I then in this booming world of Decolonization of food what it, how do I define what I do it's a product of of colonialism it's not authentic to the place that it came from, but it's authentic to me as a first generation child of immigrants to this country that's my grandma's food is the most authentic, most comforting, most culturally connected food that I have. My family's from originally originally generations ago from Gujarat go to india don't feel connection go to East Africa I literally am just like this is this is where I'm from I know that I feel at home here the fruit the smells the ingredients and then seeing that kind of translating into the UK Um, and so I've been on this journey of trying to understand like where my place is and all of that and how do I be authentic in a world where I can't say I'm an East African chef. And I'm not, and I'm not trained that way. And I don't know all of the cuisine. I don't know all of the ingredients. But I do know the food that we cook and that we enjoy and that we love. And that's its own food culture because it's first generation immigrant food culture in Britain. And I don't see anything wrong with, you know, of sharing that with people. It's like people haven't eaten that food because it's just there is no recipe for it. So let's now I'm like every event that I do I'm pushing food that's on my grandma's recipes stuff that she's taught me how to cook things that I've adapted but it's something I'm trying to really like theme my meals and my food more in that like my food culture I guess and it's something that's been really difficult to do because I felt so needed to like pigeonhole myself at each time like I'm this kind of chef I'm this kind of chef and now you know what the fact that the kind of chef that I am is not easy to define and doesn't exist broadly in in numerous quantity is the thing that's good so now I'm like yeah that's cool I'll just cook I'll cook East African food and I'll explain it to you and that's like a really important part of my mission because there are people now that have eaten East African food that didn't even know it existed
1: There's also like two different kinds of authenticity. So there's one with a capital A and capital A authenticity is what when white people confront food that's unfamiliar to them, the way that it's plausible to eat it or exciting to eat it is if it's capital A authentic. They're like, oh, but it's so authentic. So there's a palatability in authenticity and there's a marketability and a consumption model in authenticity. Authenticity with a lowercase a is exactly what you're talking about. And that's the food that keeps us alive and keeps us developing our ideas about people migration country identity flavor and that's the kind that's exciting and it's the kind you're doing we're just going to wrap up with some um, quick fire questions so just first thing that comes to mind if you could only go to one London restaurant for the rest of your life what restaurant would you go to
0: well I mean the one that I remember most fondly and have probably been to the most while I lived in London, was Mr. Falafel in Shepherd's Bush Market. I used to, When I worked as a consultant, I used to eat in fancy restaurants all the time. Like, you know, every one of the, the top 50 world restaurants that was in London, I've eaten at at some point in the last 10 years. And yeah, yeah, I love... But you know, the last five or six years, where the street food scene has exploded, where people are being given opportunities to cook food from other countries in their authentic way, um, lowercase A, A, um, has really, like, the fine dining aspect of my life has really fallen away over the last few years. And mm-hmm. I, it's something that, I still do it, but I'm not, like, I don't have the money and I don't have the appetite to go and sit in a stuffy restaurant and be served a cis white man's modern European menu. Um, and West London, where I lived, was also not, didn't have the best restaurants compared to shoreditch so um in west london mr falafel in east london jolene jolene i could eat their pan of every day for the rest of my life three times a day and not eat anything else i have been known to drive from surrey to shoreditch <laughs> to get a pan of
1: um what is your favorite dessert
0: i mean a pastry chef being asked what their favorite dessert is that is a tricky one Um, i mean i am a huge fan of like fried dough so anything that's like a donut or a beignet or something like that i'm all over it um custard filled donuts are probably going to be quite high up there um and i'm also a big fan of rice pudding dare i say it that's the brit the brit in me
1: (laughs) um what is the most frustrating part of british culture The the attitude to food, I would say,
0: like, the classism in food, the lack of... I don't want to say lack of knowledge because I, I, I hate putting this on the people. It's not people's fault that they haven't been given the opportunity to eat well and experience good food and haven't been taught in schools about vegetables and cooking and all of that stuff. But, you know, I was watching Gogglebox the other day and somebody... It was like talking about, they thought like, they thought something like cheese grew on trees. I can't remember. It was something like totally bonkers. The
1: Family from Essex, yes. Um, it was Potatoes. That, yes, there you go. Gogglebox happens to be my favourite show. That's the only part of British culture that I like. I love Gogglebox.
0: But, you know, I was watching that and then they said potatoes grow on trees or whatever. and um, And it's stuff like that when I just think like, it's so... It's not hard to know that stuff. Like, I know that stuff just from, from being in a family that cares about food and wants you to know that stuff. And, yes, I'm aware that that was taught to me at home, not at school. But that's why I don't blame people. I blame society. Like, it's way more important to learn where your food comes from. Like, that, it was butter coming out of a cow's udder. That's what it was. That's what it was. He thought it came out after the milk and just something like that where it's just so simple you know I again I went to a private school I got taken to farms when I was a kid I saw lambs being born and I saw working farms and little things like that like it's so much more important who cares if you know what osmosis is when you're nine no we care about if you know where butter comes from that's way more important and so that for me is just like it's the capitalism in food and that apathy and it's just like food is there to to enable you to do more capitalism to make more money to spend more time in your office to have more children and spend more money consuming goods and the only thing that that matters with food is that you pay somebody else to make it for you to free up your time to do more capitalism and that's for me that is food culture in this country is what can i shove in my gob and ignore in order to do x y and z and that's just the opposite of how i see food it's like what do i have to do in my day that prevents me from spending time cooking and eating let's get that out of the way and then focus on food um you know i try to end work at like five o'clock so i if i want to spend two hours cooking dinner i can like i don't want to finish work at seven and be like oh no i have to like eat beans on toast not that i have a problem with beans on toast love beans on toast but for me, like, that's just not, I don't like it. I, capitalism's just doing my head in at the moment. I'm not going to lie. Just had it.
1: <laughs> I, also, I just feel so grateful that butter isn't what comes out after milk. Can you imagine how much grosser it would feel to eat? Uh, I don't think I'd, I'd be able to eat butter. And I, I can't, absolutely I can't even adore even butter. not about it without feeling like, sick.
0: Um, exactly. What is your favorite city to visit?
1: Um, Naples
0: and San Francisco. And they are great cities to eat in.
1: What's your favorite view in London?
0: I'm a big fan of the view. Well, various views, but the river. The river is absolutely stunning. On a sunny day, standing on like Chelsea Bridge, looking either way, standing on Tower Bridge. But the best view I've ever had of London, only once in my life. It was like a one in a million. I was flying home from South America um, or America, but it was that direction. And it was a clear day, and we had to turn around, so we ended up coming in from um, the east of the UK instead of the west, and um, low flying over through central London, like literally you could see, like you could see the London Eye, you could see the Albert Hall, you could see everything. I could literally see my house. It was so clear, and this was what twenty years ago, and I still remember it like vividly. It's the best view out of a plane anyone has ever had. Guaranteed.
1: What is your favourite sauce?
0: Oh, chilli crunch slash chilli crisp.
1: Um, what's your dream dinner guest, dead or alive?
0: Dream dinner guest, dead or alive.
1: We had somebody recently answer their parents, but when they were the age that they are now.
0: Oh, no. I <laughs> know. I absolutely would not want to do that <laughs> at all. No, actually, do you know what? I would love to have a meal with
1: my grandma
0: and my grandma's sister when they were my age. That would be brilliant. Nanny and Dolly auntie at the age of 35. Love it.
1: Do you have anything that you want to plug? Anything coming up you want to talk about or shout out to?
0: Um, Well, since we've spoken about it a bit and it is doing good as well as making me money. um, My book that I wrote in 2020, it's very short. It's about 60 pages long and it's called 10 Steps to a More Joyful Relationship with Food. And it's literally like 10 kind of three or four page essays about things that for me make up an important relationship with food. And it's very little to do with food choice and health. It's more about um, self-knowledge, self-care. It's about finding joy and connection. It's about um, breaking down the fears and stresses that we have around food, diet culture, cooking, all of that stuff and trying to reframe it in a way that's That's more positive. Um, And then I also have an intuitive cooking online course. It's like an eight week course where we talk about the kind of building blocks that I see are important to having an intuitive and joyful relationship with food practically. So it's not about recipes. It's not about um, prescriptive cooking. It's about looking at spices, herbs, cooking techniques, seasonality and um, mindset and how all of those things combine for you to look in your fridge and make a delicious meal without any thought, without any planning, and um, one that is exactly what you need to eat at the time, because that's what's so great about cooking intuitively. You don't plan things, and so when you get to day three of your meal plan, you find that, oh, no, I don't want to eat that now. you like, literally at every point, it's, like, listening to your body, listening to your soul, making and eating the things that are right for you at that time, whether it's emotional, mental, or physical – and therefore um, giving yourself goodness with everything you put in your mouth, even if it's just a piece of chocolate. It's all on my website, so thefoodwitch.com. The book is available from large capitalist retail giants, but I encourage you to buy direct from me.
1: Fabulous. And we're going to link all of that in the description of the episode. If you are interested, you can follow it there um, and go support Sal and all the good work happening at the Food Witch. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us. It's been so fascinating.
0: Thank you. It's been great. Beyond the Pass is produced by Kelly's Cause Foundation. For more information about Kelly's Cause, please head to kellyscause.com or find us on Instagram at Kelly's Cause.